I'm on like slide five of this presentation and this guy jumps up out of the audience, uh, not even me calling on him if he was raising his hand, he just hops up. And in front of hundreds of people that I'm presenting to, he starts berating me. Uh, my doctor is the top doctor at NYU and he would never use this product. <laughs> and I was so caught off guard. It, it must've felt kind of like Kanye West, like stealing the microphone from Taylor Swift. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> what do you even do? How do you reply to this? Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle Lamoureux. Welcome back. This is the first episode of season four of the podcast, and I'm thrilled that you are tuning in today. If you are new to the show, this podcast is about loving yourself and your life and owning your true voice and your power in the world as a woman. It is really about reclaiming what's important to you, and to begin to take some steps in the direction of your dreams. So one way that I like to spark the flame is by sharing stories of female entrepreneurs who are just doing exceptionally well. Joining us today to share her story is Zoe Berry, who began her career on Wall Street. But at the young age of 26, Zoe launched her first venture called Zap RX when a family member was diagnosed with a severe condition that required specialized therapy. Zap RX was best described as the Amazon Prime for 100,000 a year specialty medication. As a sole founder, Zoe raised over $42 million for Zap RX before the company was acquired by Allscripts in June of 2019. When she isn't busy building her company, Zoe enjoys mentoring first-time founders, and she also co-founded an angel investment group called XX Angels, which primarily leads rounds for formation stage tech companies with female founders at the helm. To date, Zoe has invested in over 20 startups. She was named one of Inc. Magazine's 30 Entrepreneurs Under 30 in 2015 and Boston Business Journal's 40 Under 40 in the same year. When she is not busy working, Zoe is an amateur race car driver and avid skier. I had a great time speaking with her today. I think you're going to love her personality and her story and the great tips that she shares for any female entrepreneur, especially if you're looking to raise capital. So all of the show notes, as a reminder, can be found at thegoodlifecoach.com forward slash 116 for today's interview. And there may be a name change coming for the podcast. So if you have yet to subscribe, take a look at your phone now and just hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or from wherever you tune in. And if it's from my website, there's a subscribe button on the right-hand column of the podcast page that you can just click on and it'll take you right there. So on that note, let's get into the show. This is a fun one. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Zoe. Happy to have you on today. 
Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to be here, Michelle. Yeah. So I discovered you, I think, on Instagram and I thought, wow, this is an interesting female entrepreneur who is definitely committed to raising up other women to own their power, own their voice. And that's really what the show is about. And I love the fact that you started your company at 26. And I thought, what is the mindset of a 26-year-old? Like, who is this woman that started a company at 26? So I'd love to just start with what lit a fire to get you to become an entrepreneur at such a young age. Absolutely. And um, what a great question and and a great starting point. So thank you. Um, So I got my career start working on Wall Street. I graduated from Columbia in 2007. I started at a broker dealer fund, and then I made my way over to an actual hedge fund. And it was a really exciting opportunity when I was at this hedge fund where I reported directly into the founder, the PM of the hedge fund, John Dawson. And when I was there, I felt like the world was my oyster and it was so exciting. And I got to see the decision-making really on the front lines of investment decisions. And I was brought in very much as John's protege. It was a concept that he always felt like he should be lifting up um, young analysts that reported directly into him and really got to see what it was like on the front lines, um, building building a firm, making investment decisions. And then, um, in that time period, in that process, I had a family member that got really sick and needed a life-saving, life-altering medication. And I decided to put on my analyst hat and map the healthcare space. And what I saw was that there was this white space, this big opportunity to create a product, uh, very much the Amazon Prime for $100,000 life-saving medications. And at the same time, I was feeling like I should have been much further along in my career. And I started looking at all the people that I had worked for and I had consistently worked for founders of firms. And when I was a kid, I used to say the one thing I want to be when I grow up is the person who's you know writing checks and, and is making decisions. And I didn't have the word CEO. I didn't have the word founder. I didn't have the word entrepreneur. I just wanted to run a business. Um, so when I saw this uh, this opportunity that I was able to map and then paired that with that passion of wanting to solve a problem that I lived and I acutely knew and knew uniquely versus other players in the market, um, I decided, you know, screw it. I'm going to go found a company. And I, I truly had no idea what it was that I was doing. Um I didn't know what a term sheet was. I didn't know what a pitch deck was. I was totally naive to the startup space, um, but I figured it out. And it got to a point where I just felt I was so sick of working for other people, even though I was only 26. It, it felt claustrophobic is the best way that I can describe it, mm-hmm. that I'd rather have no paycheck. I'd rather have no health insurance and I'd rather wake up in, in the morning and I could wake up at 6.30 or 7 or whatever time I wanted to. And I would be the person who decided what I did that day. And it was such a departure from being told what to do, having an income and stability, but really being underwhelmed with that, um, with the roles that I'd had. So um, John kind of spoiled me, <laughs> gave me that seat on the front lines, and I decided to roll with it and take it from there. So I think a lot of women have that feeling that they want to go for something, but they don't. Um, But it's interesting because you talked about yourself as a little girl trying to (laughs) picture yourself as a person writing checks. And I think that um, who we are as kids oftentimes does, you know, that intuition that that whatever we're born with is with us. And 
it takes a certain mindset though to then step out and actually do it. Um, you're clearly a fearless person. I mean, I just, again, from Instagram, I think I read that or in your bio, your amateur race car driver, you clearly have ambition and the need for like excitement and you're going to be, you're a risk taker. Yes. Um, so I'm going to want to ask you some questions about mindset and all of that, but let's continue to follow your journey. So you have the concept and I'm sorry about the family member who had that, that situation. Um, what does it mean when you say hundred thousand dollar prescriptions? Is that like, what does that mean? Yep. Um, that's a, such a good question. So um, $100,000 medication often treats what's called a specialty condition. So um, the 1984 Rare and Orphan Disease Act provided protection um, for pharmaceutical companies to go into spaces where there were very, very few patient numbers. So if you take one step back and look at healthcare, most pharmaceutical companies were pursuing areas where it was really high volume. So something like birth control or you know, cholesterol, Lipitor, um, erectile dysfunction, right? Like lots of patients want that want those medications, allergy drugs. Yeah. Um, and they'll charge very small fee. You know, you, you hear about $4 generics at Walmart, but there's a huge number of patients um, that are going to want to take those drugs. That mindset resulted in categories where there were very few patients being left behind. Mm-hmm. And no drugs and no R&D were put into categories like ALS, if everyone remembers the ice bucket challenge, mm-hmm. right? Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, these other areas were not um, in the focus point. And the patient groups for these categories got together and really lobbied for protection and for rights to come in to, to, to in, encourage pharmaceutical companies to come in and create drugs for them. Mm-hmm. So the Rare and Orphan Disease Act says if there's fewer than 200,000 patients, a drug can come to market and you don't need to spend, you know, 10 years doing R&D because it's so acute to get a drug mm-hmm. to market. Yeah. Something people may appreciate now with the vaccines, mm-hmm. yeah. how fast track a, a drug yeah. or a vaccine with COVID. Um, and therefore, you'll spend fewer years uh, in the uh, clinical trial process. So you can get to market faster. So you have patent protection there and you have price stability where you know that if you target that category, the, the drugs will be reimbursed at a high cost. Um, most things that people don't realize is that it takes $1.5 billion to bring a drug to market in about 10 years. So there's a lot of confusion about why are drugs so expensive, this, that, and the other thing. Um, now that I'm out of healthcare, I can speak more, um, directly to that, but for anyone who's upset about that, I highly encourage you to go look at the fortune 500. You're not going to see as many pharmaceutical companies as you think you'll see a lot of insurance companies and PBMs. So Okay, but let me just clarify. But for the the consumer, how, I mean, are they getting the drugs at an affordable price? Yeah, or is, so, yeah. Okay. so that's the whole that's the whole thing. The the consumer doesn't actually pay a hundred thousand okay. dollars. The insurance company, which is a for profit organization, mm-hmm. they're the ones who pay. The way the drugs are priced is that you're covering the R and D cost to bring a drug to market, but it's also the if the patient did not get access to the therapy, the cost would be significantly greater. So the average patient would make um, have many, many hospitalizations while waiting for the drug or not being on the drug, which is how those drugs are priced. Okay. So it's a very complicated um, process. It mm-hmm. is really hard for the general consumer to understand it. It feels like it should be like an iPhone. If I buy an iPhone, that means Apple's making money. Right. But that's not how healthcare works. Um, it's a lot more complicated than that. So when you're buying a drug, Yes, it is the pharmaceutical company who makes it, but you're actually technically, when you're paying a copay, you're buying and sharing costs with the insurance company. 
Okay. And so what were you trying to solve for? So these were the rare, you know, diseases and issues. And so what were you hoping to achieve? I wanted to get patients on therapy in days, not weeks. So with these drugs, even though they get approved and the FDA says there, there's an acute need for these patients to get the drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, the reality was the insurance companies would throw up a lot of barriers and say, no, thank you. I don't want to pay. In my opinion, now that I'm out of healthcare, that's essentially insurance fraud. You mm -hmm. as a consumer has, have paid for insurance. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you need a procedure, you're given all these barriers as to why it's the, the insurance company says you're not eligible for coverage. In my opinion, that is insurance fraud. Mm -hmm. Um, so what ends up happening in what my family experience is you get diagnosed, there is a drug and now you can't get on therapy and you spend weeks or months battling to get access. My family, we ended up spending six months battling to get access. Wow. The industry standard is two to three months. And so my vision was to make it as simple as, you know, 48 hours or 24 hours, just like Amazon prime, like you get diagnosed and you get on therapy instantaneously. None of this nonsense. Um, so my first company was very much the Amazon Prime for $100,000 life-saving medications. Wow. Well, thank you for doing that. I mean, it didn't exist before you, right? So this is, was it, did you have any competitors or nobody was doing this? Otherwise you would have been um, used it. No, the, the biggest competitor was the fax machine. Um, when you need a drug that's that expensive, usually you're filling out these 40-page fax packets, which nurses would be pulling their hair out. Um, so they were very appreciative of the product. Um, we made it incredibly seamless, very much that experience of, you know, I want to go on, I want to order something. This is the product that I want. And all the paperwork and back and forth is, um, is completed automatically. Okay. So take us into the story. So it's, is it Zap RX? Is that how you pronounce yeah, it? Yeah. It stood for Zoe's prescription app. Nice. And oh, nice. I like that. There you go. <laughs> Zap RX. Uh, so you have the concept, you're like, I'm doing this. You're solving a huge need. Um, a young woman looking to raise funds in a very male dominated industry is an experience. Can you take us into some of the experiences that you had trying to raise funds and get people to stand behind something a that doesn't exist you're creating something new so it's like totally blue ocean strategy here and so people are like oh i've not heard of this i mean it might be a good concept but you have to convince them to give you money and at some point you raised 42 million dollars so how did that how did that transpire and just quickly tell us what year did you found your company 2012 and you sold it Seven years later, last year, 2019. Yeah, so eight and a half years. I'm sold it in June of 2019. Okay, all right. So take us take us into the fundraising experience as a young woman. Um, so I did have a, a bit of a leg up in that I worked at a hedge fund, and therefore I knew what investors were looking for. Mm -hmm. um, but I think more so than that was just that I wanted to ask for money. And the one thing I'll say is I now do a lot of angel investing a lot of women are hesitant to even ask for help. They don't feel worthy. Whereas men will go out with just an idea on a cocktail napkin and say, my company's worth $10 million and I'm raising a million dollars. You can get 10%. This is an opportunity, not a favor. Mm -hmm. And women don't behave like that. And I, it's 2020 and people don't want to talk about gendered behavior and these dynamics. But I have to say as a woman mm -hmm. and also as a woman who invests in women, I do see these, these gender dynamics play out. Yeah. Um, so... I, my first step was to figure out what was the startup equivalent of, of a prospectus or a deck. And it turns out there's very much a formula 
or fundraising. There is a very specific set of slides and data and inputs that investors are looking for. They're looking to pattern match. And as soon as they can do that, then they'll feel whether or not you're sort of in their thesis or not in their thesis. If they have a, a partner who can add a lot of value, then they start to lean in. The other thing is investors claim that they like to do early stage. That's kind of true. They like to do certain early stage for a certain type of entrepreneur, which is typically a serial entrepreneur who's exited, who's an entrepreneur in residence, incubating an idea at their VC fund. Mm -hmm. In actuality, what VCs like to do is see you go out and raise friends and family round, then a pre-seed round, Mm -hmm. then a seed round, and then they'll start to decide if they want to get interested. And series A is actually generally where more VC funds play unless they have early stage deals even the early stage components of their fund, even then you're probably actually dealing with a principal or an associate at that level. Yeah, And I think that's some of the demystification of fundraising that I'm very passionate about bringing forth mm-hmm. is that entrepreneurs, male or female, but often first time founders don't really understand these dynamics and they're pitching VC funds and they don't, they think they're early stage and the VC does early stage and therefore they could be a fit. Yeah. They don't realize that they need to do all these other things to show all the really cool like CTO of WeWork or of Spotify or insert other venture-backed company that is an angel. And that pattern matching of, okay, well, if some high up person at a unicorn status company is going to spend some of their you know, trappings on this new upstart, that's interesting. So that's the pattern I'm looking for. I'm not really looking for your mom or dad to be the investor. I'm looking for an executive at a startup to be an investor. And then I'll start thinking about whether I, as a, as a VC, am truly interested in your startup. Totally. This is actually a great education. Now, I, I was telling you, we were talking before the mics went on. I was like, we could go two tracks here. Entrepreneurial story and like totally how do you raise funds if you're a startup, especially as a woman and understanding, navigating that. And I love what you just explained because I think it's going to help people realize like, just how challenging like what you've accomplished is. So we're going startup in in this one, but like what you explained is really helpful because people are going to go, wow, she navigated that starting at 26 years old. So you're, so originally did you end up going, okay, here, I'm thinking I'm going to go get VC money. And then you started realizing, okay, I'm going to go the angel route because there was one slide you did that made me laugh where you, I want you to tell the story, if you don't mind, about the PowerPoint that you did when you were trying to raise money and the guy that kind of tried to shut you down and what happened. Yeah. That was that was a classic moment. Um, so the story for the, the listeners is I was going through the pitch deck. I was pitching um, actually an angel group. And they were a sophisticated angel group. So they they write big checks. You know, At the time, $250,000 was a, was a really healthy amount of money for an, an angel group. Um, I'm on like slide five of this presentation. And this guy jumps up out of the audience, um, not even me raising his, you know, me calling on him if he was raising his hand, he just hops up. And in front of hundreds of people that I'm presenting to, he starts berating me. Uh, My doctor is the top doctor at NYU and he would never use this product. (laughs) And I was so caught off guard. I mean, it must've felt kind of like Kanye West, like stealing the microphone from Taylor Swift. I was like, oh my God, what do you even do? How do you reply to this? And I really like stutter and stammer. And somebody else is in the audience that was a doctor and was like, 
hey, buddy, like as a doctor, this product's not meant for you. This is meant for somebody else and you're not the target demographic. So like sit down and and cool your jets. Mm -hmm. We literally go (laughs) two more slides in the deck and somehow this guy was still standing. (laughs) And all of a sudden he belts out, who, how do you know Dr. David Silverman? And I was like, oh, he's an advisor to the company because he saw this problem and recognized it himself and was thinking about founding a, a, a company that would do the same thing. But when he saw me, he realized he was a doctor and he was not going to go give up his medical license and practice and become an entrepreneur. So he decided to invest in me instead. We don't even skip a beat. His voice jumps like Minnie Mouse. That's my doctor <laughs> in front of everybody. <laughs> I love it. It was insane. It was what are the odds of that? I love this. I've ever seen it. Actually, I think in all my pitches, that was probably the most insane moment. Anyway, that angel group invested $250,000 on the spot. And of all the companies that presented that day, I was the only one that got financed. Wow. Congratulations. Okay. So you had to figure out how to navigate all of the space. What were the you know, people that you pulled on board, like what were you doing to help do what you needed to do? You know, mentors, you mentioned the guy at Dawson Capital, like what did you do and how did you kind of navigate this? Yeah. So I, I, when I first started, I just knew that I needed to fill in a lot of holes. I think one thing that is really critical with entrepreneurs is, you know, being that passionate to get started, but also having really acute self-awareness. So I knew that I wasn't a product person or an engineer and I wasn't going to go learn how to code and then attempt to like simultaneously be the CEO and also code the product. Yeah. Um, so I set really strict guardrails in terms of what I was good at and what I was not good at and then promptly hired around my weaknesses. But I also pulled in advisors first so that I could learn about that space. So before I hired a CTO, I brought in technical advisors. Um before I cut checks to law firms, I pulled in people that knew about structuring companies and you know how what how vesting works and what's a, what a cliff is in an offer, and do you do you know stock and, and option grants or do you do RSAs and RSUs? I mean, all these things. It was just like you know alphabet soup to me in terms of these words and these terms and these lingos. Um, but I realized I was really curious and I was unabashedly afraid of asking for advice. And I asked for help and pulled people in. And that was really the make or break difference. And I think there's often two times at which people become entrepreneurs. It's either really early in their career where they just feel like I described, you know, claustrophobic and not um, satisfied, or it's later in their career where they've seen success and they they you know have a, a mortgage and kids and whatnot, but they were wealthy enough that they can go out and, and try something. What's interesting is the the young wonderkins are often more successful because they know that they're inexperienced in being a CEO. Therefore, they ask for help. But it's really not cute when a 65-year-old man is asking for help and can't figure out what an option agreement is. Right? Yeah. So it's interesting when you actually... I recommend it's much better to start earlier in your career than it is to wait until later in your career. Yeah, your story reminds me a little of Sarah Blakely, you know, where she says like her, you know, where people underestimated her. It was actually one of the things that benefited her because they're like, oh, you know, this person's not a threat or we don't have to pay attention. And then it was like, whoa, look out world. Like, no, you've totally underestimated. 
my favorite thing is to be underestimated. Um, my mom used to have a saying, like, give someone a rope long enough and they'll ultimately make a noose out of it. And, you know, if you come in and show you have 52 cards in your deck and you show all 52 of them, um, people will treat you differently. My preference is to come in and show one or two cards and then wait and watch. And I see what they do with that information. And some people immediately pull me in and want to help me and coach me. Um, and others think that they can jerk me around and then they have no idea what's coming. Um, and that's, I'd rather know that than sort of invite somebody in and have, you know, some sort of odd dynamic. Um, if someone really knows what I'm capable of, they should be a hundred percent, you know, pro Zoe. Um, I, I find it very interesting because you ferret out people who think you're a little girl and you're not going to do much, or I'm going to give you a term sheet and I'm going to, you know, take all of your company for pennies. Um, and VCs do that. They, they do these really pernicious things. Um, and I personally, I, I personally really love those learning experiences. Yeah. And I love that you're paying it forward and sharing it. Well, a lot of the women who listen are the women who are starting in the second chapter, you know, they've had their successes and whatever. And then there's women who are listening who are right out of college and they're, they want to be the next Zoe. Let's talk about mindset yeah. because you were a little girl who was selling balloon animals. <laughs> you were, so tell us about that. Cause I think, you know, there's, there, there are the women and I would say it's the majority, honestly, having interviewed so many women in the 2% who are like the seven plus figure entrepreneurs who've really broken barriers They've had that drive within them since they were little, but there are women who are passionate now and waking up to what they want to do. So just talk to us about mindset and maybe how your younger mindset helped play into your success. Sure. So um, at, a, at a young age, I so the, the balloon animal story, for, for those of you who are new to it, um, I really wanted a hamster. We all go through those phases as, as kids. Um, and I told my mom, um, that I would clean the house and clean the toilet and all these, you know, unpleasant uh, tasks and do the dishes. If she would give me, I, I ran the budget. It was like $24 to get a hamster and a hamster set up. And my mother was horrified. Uh, she said, absolutely not. The last thing I'm doing is teaching you that as a woman if, that you can clean and then spend somebody else's money. Oh, that is not the lesson that I want you to learn mm -hmm. as a kid. And I was like, okay, well, what do I do? I want a hamster. So right. I need to make money here. <laughs> um, so she decided to teach me how to make balloon animals. And my first venture was this balloon animal venture. Um, I did it with my babysitter at the time. And we spent two weeks learning how to make balloon animals and then went to Central Park and we figured out a business model work up, you know, a pack of 20 balloons was $2.99, but there's a lot of colors that are unfavorable, like brown right? Most people wanted the blues and the whites and the yellows and the oranges, um, except for boys, boys like brown and black swords. Um, so there were colors to practice on and practice making balloon animals. And then a certain number are going to pop. And so if you have a pack of balloon animals and there's only five blues, you actually need four packs to go out and make balloon animals so that you have enough blues. Um, it was really interesting because I learned about the quality of product. I learned about different types of materials and I'll never forget. There's a really shiny balloon. And I was a kid selling balloon animals <laughs> in the park in central Wanting park. Wanting them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How old were you, Zoe? 
I was eight. Oh, you were <laughs> eight. My goodness. You were really little. Yeah. You were, you're the little. oldest of eight too. So this was like yeah. before. Yeah, so the old, oldest of eight. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I was eight at the time. Okay. Um, yeah. So I guess it's a, a lucky number that follows yeah. me. Yeah. Um, so they, there's this pearly, shiny, pretty balloon. And this boy saw it and was like, I really want that balloon. And I was like, what do you want? And he said, I want a sword. And I was like, I looked at the dad and I said, I don't recommend this shiny balloon because he wants it to be a sword and he's probably going to go stab a rock and it's going to pop immediately because even though it's shiny, it's actually low quality and it pops really quickly. So this is not, I don't recommend this, this particular balloon for boys. And the dad was like, what, why didn't you just sell it to me? And I said, well, to be honest, sir, there's only one eight-year-old selling balloon animals in the park to other eight-year-olds. So if I sell you a product and it pops, then we're going to get out on the street pretty fast with playground. We're going to get out on the playground pretty fast that, you know, the eight-year-old selling balloons is selling a, a shoddy product and I'm not going to have a lot of repeat customers. And the dad was just, like, you know, absolutely floored. Of course. But I learned so much about standing behind a product. I learned about sharing revenues with my, you know, babysitter co-founder. Um, I learned about pitching to the other um, kids and like trying to hear what they really wanted. And it was just a, a fascinating experience. And so I, yeah, I got the hamster and then I stuck with making balloon animals because it was so exciting as a business. And it was so much fun. Like the, the passion didn't become cleaning and having a pet hamster. The passion became, how do I make a business model? How do I expand um, outside of balloon animals into something else? How do I upsell them? Um, it was, you know, like a once in a lifetime opportunity and you take those lessons and it, it made me want more for my career as an adult woman. I did work on wall street. I did work at a hedge fund and I was paid really well, but it wasn't enough. It didn't like fill that itch of learning and having responsibility. And so, yes, you can have a mindset from a very early age. I'd also venture to say that there's a lot of moms out there who probably maybe even gave up careers or took you know, past it weren't accelerated because they were balancing children and their, you know, work responsibilities. And so they couldn't have a rocket ship career and they, mm -hmm. they gave that up. Mm -hmm. And I've got to tell you, people who feel like they could have done more, that's really like the thing that really should inspire women, right? Like mm -hmm. that's the thing that you should hold on to because it doesn't matter if you're young or old, right? I said, it's not cute when a 65 year old man is asking for help. But to be very honest, if you're, you know, sort of more mature in your career, but you're asking for help, that's way better. Absolutely. No, this is great. And I love that your eight-year-old self knew that you didn't want the word on the street to be that you're selling the balloon animals that pop fast within 30 seconds. I mean, to have that insight. So I think that people um, are called to what they're gifted already to accomplish. So a dream gets set in your heart because you actually have what's in you to realize it. And so a lot of us, this we talk a lot in the show about those internal whispers, but really pursuing them. It's what you talked about. It's like, what can you really accomplish and go for? So there's the, there are the women who are starting the businesses and self-funding and aren't going to need, it's not the kind of business that's going to need funding. And then they're the ones like yours that will. If somebody is going on the path where they're raising funds, where can they get educated? Where can we direct them? And then, you know, like where, where can they learn more so that they can navigate some of this stuff with more grace? Sure. If you will? Yeah. Um, 
so I'm familiar with a lot of the resources that are in uh, the Boston ecosystem. Yeah. Um, but I also post a lot on my social media. So if anyone wants to follow my handle um, at Zoe, Z-O-E, Barry, B-A-R-Y, CEO. Um, I'm most active on Instagram, but I do post on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Um, I post a lot of tips and tricks and you know how to hire, how to fire, how to build a pitch deck. Um, if you ping me on Instagram, I, I'll, I, you can set, I'll follow up with an email um, and send you the actual pitch deck formula, uh, which I find is really helpful. It's something that I've refined from all the decks that I've made um, and the near $50 million I've raised at this point in my life, um, as well as I wear the investor hat. So I've seen a lot of pitches and I've seen sort of where the, where the pitfalls are. So I'm, I'm always happy um, to share that with budding entrepreneurs. Um, Otherwise, there's a lot of free seminars in, in Boston. There's the Venture Cafe, which is at the Cambridge Innovation Center. Um, Pre-COVID, they would host weekly events um, every Thursday for entrepreneurs, and it was free, which I thought was really critical. Um, there's Mass TLC, uh, which also hosts events. Um, sometimes they're $15, but they'll do deep dive seminars. Wherever you are in your city, I recommend Googling what I... Uh, opportunities there are for startups, because I know there's so many in San Francisco and New York. Um, Chicago has a budding startup ecosystem. I will say, if you're really passionate about building a venture-backed startup, you should be in one of those cities that I just listed. Venture capitalists don't love getting on planes for board meetings. And so they pool where a lot of the academic schools are. So, you know, New York, uh, there's a lot of people that go there post-college. Um, so there's a lot of people who are doing upstart ideas. Uh, it's called Silicon Alley. Obviously, there's Silicon Valley in Palo Alto. Um, and then Boston as well. Those are the three largest cities for venture capital. So I recommend that you put yourself in the ecosystem where there are investors. Otherwise, you're pitching a handful of people and you'll run out of leads really, really fast. Thank you. And your page is awesome. Like I said, that's how I found you. I, and you make it super fun. I just have to tell people you might just tune in just because Zoe makes it really entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I try to I try to make it a mix of um I call it founder fitness and fashion. Yeah. Um so it's like I'm a founder and I want to make that accessible to people. I'm into fitness because I almost got burnt out. Um I almost didn't come back to be an entrepreneur the second time around. So, you know, have those detox days. And then the the fashion thing is like, fuck it, I'm successful. Like, I want to go buy cool stuff. I want to have a, a nice lifestyle. Like, there is that re reward for that really hard work. And I feel like so often women are just always in a box of being penalized, right? Like, who bought you those fancy shoes or boots? Not, I bought it for myself, goddammit. Right? And I just, I feel like, oh, you're a CEO. You're not allowed to wear a bikini. Fuck that. I'm absolutely going to wear a bikini. I'm going to wear it on a yacht and I'm going to pay for the whole goddamn thing. <laughs> you crack me up. Wait, I have to find this post. I had it pulled up before we started. I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase. So this is one of, I think this is the one I found you at. Okay. Cause this is the heart of what this show's about. You wrote, you want me to fly, but maybe in beige and at night. So no one can see me. Oh, you want me to be a moth? No, thanks. I'm an effing butterfly with all the super flamboyant colors flapping around in broad daylight. I have a bold personality personality and some people in power want to mute that. They want me to be their idea of a good of a good role model instead of chasing their stereotypes and letting me be myself. Um, and then you said, my idea of a good role model is showing the world what an authentic CEO lifestyle is. And the, dis oh, the 
Disneyfication of female founders or CEOs is so prevalent in our society. And yeah, this is about owning who you are. This is about being unapologetically yourself. This is what this show's about. It's like there's too many uh, rules and this, you know, these boxes that people want to put us in, especially in a patriarchal system. Like, you know, venture capital is changing, but I saw one of your posts that even the women are tough on the other women when they're trying to raise money. So it's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So let's give them a takeaway, Zoe, based on that. I loved that post so much because that really is at the heart of what we're talking about. Be you, like do you, right? Yeah. And that post was written because I was getting a lot of shit from a lot of white men that they were like, I'm so embarrassed for you with your Instagram. And I was like, really? Because I get messages day in and day out about how it changed people's lives. You're the ones who are sitting in this like control seat, which by the way, it's eroding. So enjoy that while it lasts. Um, <laughs> but these women are up and coming and they want to see somebody be flamboyant and have a big personality. And I found it's really hard to be a woman and talk about your relationships at all. So like if you're single, then investors are worried that you're going to be distracted with, you know, fundraising because you're going to be out dating on a, on a Friday or Saturday night. If you have a boyfriend, they're worried that you're going to be thinking like, oh, maybe I'll, you know, get married um, or break up and be distracted. Does that if come up in- when you're trying to raise money? They want to yeah, know your sure. status? Um, yeah, it, it certainly does. Um, it Unlike employment, uh, they're making an investment decision so they can absolutely full... They have nothing, there is nothing wrong with them asking what your relationship status is. And if you are a parent, um, which is insane. Uh, I had a, I had other, uh, conversations where people were, uh, worried that I was distracted because I was freezing my eggs and didn't think that I was holding the CEO job. Uh, I was, didn't, wasn't taking it quote unquote seriously because I was doing an elective procedure. Holy moly. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is so good. Thank you for sharing that. It's funny. I just interviewed a woman yesterday. The show hasn't come out yet. And she ended up sharing. She's 40. She's having a child by, by herself right now. And, you know. Good for her. I'm exactly. so happy for her. Me too. And I was like, yes, I love that you just shared that. Like, this is what it's about. It's about living your life your way completely. Um, I can't believe that they asked you that stuff. Can you share just one example of a lesson that you learned the hard way that maybe would be, you know, or maybe a common mistake you see women make when trying to, you know, um, launch their, their venture. Yeah. So, um, if I think about one of the hardest things that I I learned, uh, which was just painful and it wasn't investors, it was actually a mistake that I made myself. Um, being a founder is lonely and scary. And so you have this desire to no longer be alone and afraid um, and by yourself at your kitchen table. And you want to talk and bounce ideas off things. So people often go down the co-founder route. And I, if you follow anything that I do, I'm vehemently opposed to co-founders. So I only sole found companies. I make it something I'm very clear on. And part of that was because I had some bad experiences. Um, Whether you make that decision or you don't, that's fine. This is the really key lesson. Do not hire friends. The number of times that you will bring somebody on board and then find it's really hard to manage them because when they quote say they're at a doctor's appointment, you know that they went out the night before and are not at a doctor's appointment, but are missing the 9 a.m. meeting. And it gets really hard to have those tough conversations. Um, No matter how talented you think somebody is, do not bring them on. Do not put them on payroll if they are a friend. 
um, you will nine times out of 10 lose that friendship. Um, and it was a really tough lesson for me to learn. Cause I, I hired people in a few different points that I thought were so fantastic. And I lost those friendships either cause they were not qualified, um, or they didn't want to be, um, told no on certain things. Mm. Um, or they wanted to sort of take advantage of the position. Um, and you don't see any of that going into it. Um, and so I've lost a lot of friendships and some, I wish I hadn't lost. I, there was one person who I hired that was insanely talented and she just really wanted to go and be a housewife. And I wanted her to grow her career in product and be like the most amazing person and, uh, you know, on a path towards the executive level. And that wasn't her dream. And I will say, I made the mistake of trying to push my dream for her on, and that made me lose that friendship. So that's a, that's maybe a, a, a big don't, but I've got a do for you as well, which Please. is let's, let's land on a high note. Uh, so one of the things I see that's a difference between men and women is I mentioned that men will idea on a cocktail napkin, go out and ask for cash and money and, and get started. And women uh, will make lists. They'll make all the lists in the world as to why they're not ready to raise money yet. But when they accomplish the 10 things on the list, then they'll, they'll go do that. So you're listening and you're, thinking, oh yeah, I have my list. Stop doing that. Just go get started. Building a startup is not about, it is not about, you know, trying to build a billion dollar business. Building a startup is about seeing what you're capable of, what you can accomplish. Um, 90% of the time your startup will fail, but you're going to learn so much. That is your MBA. That is your rocket ship. That is your path to the absolute top. Um, you are going to learn so much of what you're capable of that that's success um, in in my opinion. Um, and you're you're also gonna have a really fun time. Yeah, startups are hell, they're up and down, they're roller coasters, they're nuts. But I would never stick it out at a corporation for a nine to five for a paycheck and health insurance, knowing what I know now about role and responsibility and there's the thrill of building a company and seeing so much of what I'm capable of. I'm 35 now and I'm exponentially more successful than if I had stayed on Wall Street where people get paid pretty darn well. Um, My life is radically different, but how I have fun is radically different because my definition of fun is watching, you know, hiring someone and watching them cultivate their career, watching them go found a company because I gave them those skill skill sets and tools. And so just get started. Don't make those lists, like pull off the bandaid, walk in and quit your job, leave, go get started. Don't don't sit there being treated less than in a role that is unfulfilling, doing anything that's boring. You get one life to live, go live it. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen to that. I actually think that's, I was going to ask you one other thing, but I actually think that's a perfect place to land. Thank you. Um, Zoe, where can I direct people to learn more about you and your work? Uh, ZoeBerry.com. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Zoe, Z-O-E, Barry, B-A-R-R-Y or on my Instagram at Zoe Berry CEO. Awesome. This has been such a pleasure. I wish you continued success. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Zoe and that you walked away with some information that you didn't know before, or that it inspired you in some way to take some action in your life. If you enjoyed today's interview, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts if you've yet to do so. Thanks as always for tuning in, and I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now.